If you are brand new, my name is Jose, and uh, it's great to be back. I was in Scotland and Estonia over the last two weeks. It's great to be a part of a community, a church, that cares not only about itself, but cares about the world. And so I was in two countries, spoke at 25 events in seven different cities, 10 flights, and I made it all the way home. So like the ancient philosopher, thank you. Well, that's very, very kind of you, Tracy. Like the ancient philosopher Dorothy said, there's no place like home, all right? It's, um, it's good to be in your own bed. Hallelujah. People don't have as nice mattresses as we do. I'm just throwing it out there. But uh, it's great to be back in the book of Acts officially, even though Kenny was teaching from it last week. Now we're launching in to part two. It was Acts square one, how the church started, how the movement of Jesus began to spread. But what we're going to see from Acts 13 forward is that there's momentum, Suddenly, what took a little while starts to spread like wildfire. And the church is taken to the ends of the earth. By the next few months, you're going to see that in their lifetime, the community of Jesus followers was able to share the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth that they knew. And we're studying Acts, just as a reminder, not to read an ancient story about a people that we don't understand but to see ourselves, to look at what God is doing here and wants to do in our world. And we want to partner with God on his mission to the planet he has called us to. And how do we do that? So we're going to learn a lot in the book of Acts. So here's the plan for today, because we've been out of it for a while. Uh, We're going to recap the first 12 chapters. We're going to look at the big themes so that in case you don't remember everything that has been said, uh, and, and side note, There are 25 teachings on the first 12 chapters on our website. So I would encourage you this week, take a day off and listen to all 25. Just all, I authorize you, take the day off. Um, And, but really, if you've missed something or if you're like, you know, I just want to hear more of the word of God, 25 messages from the first 12 chapters. And we went really slow, but now you're going to notice over the next few weeks and months, we're going to go rapid fire. We're not going to look at a few verses but large, because there's momentum, it's fast and furious, and in every chapter, we'll just highlight a few things that are happening, rather than spending all of our time looking at every verse. Uh, But the plan is to look at the first 12 chapters, read all of chapter 13, which is only 50 some odd verses, and then be done. All right, fair enough? All right, so fear not, this will not take us till two o'clock. We got a class at 1230. All right, Uh, what's Acts all about? Uh, Acts 1.8. So if you're in Acts chapter 1, just look down to verse 8. Uh, if not, it's on the screen for you, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. So Acts is the story, the long story of what happened in the first 30 plus years of the Jesus movement. And because I'm a visual learner, we're going to throw up a little graphic that has a map on it. Because Acts is a travel log. If you missed the first bit, uh, you're going to notice that the first seven chapters of Acts show how the gospel spread to Jews in and around Jerusalem. So over on your right-hand side, you see Jerusalem and the Mediterranean's in white. But all along that bank, the gospel starts to spread. Seven chapters about a very small geographic area. And at the end of chapter 7, Stephen, who is a Jew at this point, all the believers in Jesus are Jewish. All of them. Uh, Stephen is killed. 
So at the beginning of the movement, there's resistance from the Jewish community against those who claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Does that end the movement? No. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 8 shows that the gospel spreads. Remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem would be like Portland, Judea would be like Oregon, kind of a thing. So the gospel in the first seven chapters is there, but in chapter 8, it starts to move to Samaria. And God uses Philip the evangelist. Why does Luke tell us about Philip and not just Peter? It's because the gospel is not just for a few leaders, it's for everyone. And being used by God is available to everyone, not just quote-unquote apostles. So Luke tells us early on who takes the gospel to Samaria. Well, it's Philip, and he goes and sees a work of the Spirit. So it's not just apostles, and it's not just those who saw Jesus face to face. Because in Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul becomes a follower of the way. So at the beginning, it was those who met Jesus and the Jews around them. Now it's pushing out to those who didn't walk with Jesus. Now it's pushing out to those who are resistant to Jesus. Remember, Saul is the one who is killing Christians, who's there saying yes to the murder of Stephen. But the good news pushes forward. Even though there's resistance, God still does his work. Well, Acts chapter 10 we see it goes from Saul, who becomes Paul, back to Peter. So God's not done with the early few. He's using them. And so what Luke does as a writer, he goes back and forth, scene after scene. It's like some television shows that are more intriguing. It's not just one setting in one room. You go back and forth. So Luke is telling us in chapter 10 that God is still using Peter. As a matter of fact, Peter is used to begin to share the good news to non Jews, remember Cornelius, is a God-fearer, which means he is a Roman citizen. He's not of Jewish descent, but he believes that Yahweh is the creator God, but he doesn't become a Jew. Well, he hears the gospel because of vision. God comes to Cornelius in a vision and says, send for a guy in a certain town and tell him to come over and he will share this news. Peter gets a vision at the same time. I'm sending you to this house And the revolution is about to begin. The early rumblings, because mostly it's on this one little piece of land close to the Mediterranean, but it's about to explode, and God's going to use all sorts of people. So now Acts 11. Turn there if you would. See, this wasn't that hard. Acts 11. The review is almost done. Acts 11, and go to verse 19. It's not going to be on the screen. This is a bonus prize for those who have an app or a printed Bible. Acts 11, verse 19, says, Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Just look up for a second on the map. And so you have Antioch just north in Syria, Damascus. It's all still in this one short geographic piece of land. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So now, Kenny mentioned this last week, but I thought it's just a good platform to remind ourselves, God is doing that. Who is the main 
person in the book of Acts. It is not Peter. It is not Philip. It is not Saul. It is God. I want to do this review because the Lord's hand was with them and many, many people believed. So where God is at work through his people, you can expect more than you should expect. Where God is at work, he's going to use all sorts of people to go all sorts of places. Notice many of them. Now, who are the names of the people that go to those who are Greek? It says many, some of them. Who are they? We don't know. So it went from Peter and James and John and a few in Jerusalem. And now it goes out to people like Philip. Then it goes out to people like Saul, who becomes Paul. Now it goes out to many. Luke is building something. There is momentum. God is going to use his whole church to reach the whole world. And we're going to pick up how to apply that by the end of this morning's time together. So Kenny reminded us that we're a family of missionary disciples. We're a family. And you're going to see that the community of Jesus followers loves one another. There's a famine. They share resources. They care. They're disciples. They're growing. There's teaching. Saul uh, is, is reached out to by Barnabas. He's brought to the church and he teaches for a year. And they're missionaries. Now, some of you, because you've been going to church for a long time, you think that a missionary is someone that goes to an agency, raises a lot of money, and goes off to a foreign land to serve. That is true. And let me just be as bold to give you my opinion. That is needed. Someone tells you missionaries aren't needed. Slap, do not slap them. But in your mind, just mentally say this, I rebuke that idea. That is the most foolish idea I've ever heard of. Until everyone is a Christian, missionaries are needed. Until everyone knows the gospel. And let me tell you, my friends, there are places where some of us are too chicken to go. So God raises up missionaries. But that's not the only thing a missionary is. Missionaries aren't just people who go to mission organizations or churches and are sent to the other ends of the earth. It's also you and I. You and I can live like missionaries right here. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Some people are called and sent like Saul and Barnabas are sent out. Not everyone in the church goes. But at the same token, the gospel spreads in Antioch. So everyone shares the gospel everywhere. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's happening so far? Chapter 12, let's just move on. Chapter 12, we see that it goes back to Peter. Luke, the writer, is going back and forth. A little bit of Cornelius a little bit of Peter, a little bit of Saul. And now he goes back to Peter, who's in jail. Jump down to verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So at this point, the beginning of chapter 12, James, one of the leaders, is killed. So Stephen's death is not a one-off. As a matter of fact, people are going to die all over the book of Acts. And that's part of God's work. It's crazy. But where God's word goes out, Resistance comes, and some are murdered for the faith. And we see it today. There are people still murdered for the faith. So this is not uncommon. This has always been there. I want you to catch that. Peter's in prison, and the church prays. This is so exciting. If you read the rest of chapter 12, the church prays, and God miraculously gets, with an angel, gets Peter out of jail. The church is so shocked when Peter knocks on the door as they're praying for him. They think it's a ghost or an angel or something. They don't even know what to think. God answers their prayer. 
Pause on Acts for a second. The five-week series on prayer was not a filler. Like, I'm going out of town, so let's just do some little thing. The church is praying in Acts 12, and it pushes the movement forward in Acts 13. We want to grow as a praying church because the secret sauce, so to speak, to God's movement is not staff, cash, or technology. It is prayer. It is believing prayer that pushes the kingdom forward. And I hope that you were rattled a bit in the last five weeks. And so I'll drop a bomb and I'll move on. I was last week at Rehope Church in Glasgow. There are only 38 churches that have 300 or more people in Scotland. The whole country. We are bigger than most of the churches in the entire country and we're three and a half years old. But this church... Rehope, I, I went there to speak and they said, hey, can you come an hour early? We pray before our gathering. I'm like, that's, that's so cool. We do the same thing too. So I come an hour beforehand and I saw what God wants to do here when it comes to prayer. I'm like, I can't believe, I wish I could have videotaped, I don't have enough memory on my phone, to videotape an hour of how their church gets together, mostly young people, mostly 20-somethings, to pray for a move of God before the gathering. And let me tell you, there were 80 plus people praying in their room for a move of God. I'm like, game on. We are not going to start it next week. We'll give it a few weeks. <laughs> but let me tell you, by faith, we are going there. And so more to come on that. Drop a bomb, move on. All right, Acts 12, 24. So what's the summary? Acts 12, 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So the movement is going forward. Now, all of that is review. Are you still alive? That wasn't that bad. Okay. Now, all we're going to do for the rest is just read Acts 13, a couple of comments, three questions at the end, and there's a pumpkin spice latte waiting for you at some other place, but we're not going there. It's too expensive. You get French vanilla and stop whining. All right. As a review, write this down before we read Acts 13. I'll give you the summary of all the book of Acts. Write it down. The Holy Spirit is looking for partners to spread the words and works of Jesus. Acts 1 through 12, and actually the rest of it is all about that. The Holy Spirit is looking for what? Partners to spread the words and the works of Jesus. Both. The church has never been just about words. It's been about works. Jesus really changes things. And the teaching validates what people are experiencing. It's both and. All right. As I promised, here we go. Now, as we read Acts 13, there are four occasions where Luke uses three words to summarize what the whole thing is about. So we're going to see four times this repeated three-word statement, and as we get there, I'll highlight it. You ready? Acts 13, 1. It says, Now the church of Antioch, uh, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up in Herod the Tetrarch, uh, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, here's the first occasion. The Holy Spirit 
Now, this is going to get redundant, but I'm going to slow down my language because I don't want you to miss it. The Holy Spirit said, said apart from me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit speaks. Don't miss the obvious. Everything I'm going to tell you is quoted straight here in the text. I'm not making it up. The Holy Spirit does what? Speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks to the church, to the people. And if we're going to see a move of God in our day, and if we're going to see transformation in our city, we need to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying in real time. So that may be like new to you, and I'm totally okay with that. If some of this sounds wacky or ethereal or experiential, calm down, breathe deep, and just keep coming. Because God is going to speak to us in a variety of ways. He doesn't speak the same message to the same people. He doesn't speak in the same way in each setting. The Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of God himself, and he knows how to communicate to you and to me. So the Holy Spirit speaks. All right, verse 4. So the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. There goes my... I'm not doing a good job of teaching. I know this is a bad principle, but we have educators here, but you will remember these three words. The Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. If we could throw the map back up, if you don't mind. Juan Carlos in the other room, the map, please. They didn't hear me. Anyway, if it comes up, just wave at me. Do we see the map? Juan Carlos. We have, it's like the Wizard of Oz. We have a wizard on the other side of the wall. Evidently, his speaker thing doesn't work. Whenever it comes, just wave at me, and I'll point it out. We'll just keep reading. The two of them sent away on the Holy Spirit, went to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. Now, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Just sounds like a cool name. Hi, I'm Sergius Paulus. I just, anyway, I'm Jose. Jose Francisco. It's not as exciting. Anyway, that was my middle name. Drop the bomb. Walk away. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alemus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So you have people sharing the gospel and then you have, oh, there you, oh, thank you. It's interactive. This is so cool. Anyway, now the point is useless, okay? But I'm going to walk over here just because I love you. So um, Jerusalem, they go up to Damascus, to Antioch, and now I just want you to see this. It's going over to Cyprus, So there's two Antiochs here. We're going to read about another Antioch. It's Antioch in Syria. It's going to go to Cyprus and then north to the other Antioch. I just want you to see, I'm a visual learner, that the gospel goes from east to west. The gospel goes from south to north. There is physical movement. Because when you read these names, you think it's all like Hillsborough, Banks, Cornelius, you know, and maybe they went to the coast. Oh my gosh, you know. The gospel is going to now require ships. It's going to require serious travel, and it's going to require movement of the people. 
Okay, so the Holy Spirit we first saw speaks. Now, the Holy Spirit sends. I'm sorry, I'm messing up Juan Carlos because I didn't put it in this order. Second thing I want you to write down is the Holy Spirit sends. Look back at verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So they're preaching the gospel and they see resistance. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, is interested, but there's another guy, Elimus, who's against it. But look at verse 9. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the third one. So the Holy Spirit speaks, and then the Holy Spirit sends, and then the Holy Spirit fills. Now what happens when the Holy Spirit fills you? Amazing stuff. Check this out. Look straight at Elimus and said, you're a child of the devil. I love it. Fill with the Spirit, you call people the devil. Does that not strike you as odd? Like, I thought he was a man of God, filled with the Spirit. Yeah, filled with the Spirit, he calls this guy out for what he really is. When you have the boldness of the Holy Spirit, he's not slamming the guy. He's just saying, Sergius Paulus, this guy is telling you we're liars. He is full of the devil. A.K.A. we are full of God. Now that is a holy boldness that's going to get Paul beaten up a lot. And, verse 10, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of any, everything that's right. You're full of all kinds, kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time. It's like a reverse miracle. <laughs> right? Usually God's like healing people. Here he's blinding them. Not even able to see the light of the sun. So immediately mist and darkness come over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now why is God doing this? Verse 12. When the proconsul saw, saw, saw. What do you see? He saw two people talking, one people preaching the gospel of Jesus, another guy saying, these guys are all idiots and you shouldn't listen to them. And then he saw Paul say, you're a child of the devil. Get out of my way. This guy needs to hear the gospel. You're blind. And then the next thing you know, the guy's like, when, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. It does not say he believed, then he saw. Did you catch that? He saw the work of the gospel. He saw the power of the Spirit, and he believed. And then what did he do? He was amazed by the teaching about the Lord. He saw action. He was amazed at the teaching. I want us to catch this because this is critical. Paul is proclaiming a message. He has a word to share with Sergius Paulus. And you and I have a word to share with people. So let's not discount the importance of speaking the gospel. Some people say, wrongly, in my humble opinion, I'm just going to let people see the gospel in me. And they're going to believe. No, they will not. Your living will validate what you're saying. It's not either or, it's both then. I'm not suggesting just speak and live like the devil, because that's not helpful. I am suggesting if you live out your faith and share your faith, Sergius Paulus or your buddy in the next cubicle or the other barista in the coffee shop will believe. So we need both. 
So they're sharing the word. But also, there is power. A work of the Spirit. Paul could not do this in his own strength. And what we need to remember as a church is that here at Sunset, we are a word church. We take the Bible seriously. We read 52, chap- 52 verses on a Sunday because we believe in Christian torture. We go through long sermons. We go through books. We, we do studies where we talk about theology and areas where you can grow. We believe in the scriptures. The word is central here. But have you ever been a part of a church that is high on scripture, but basically functionally says, this is what God has done, but just don't expect it here. Have you ever been a part of a community like that? They'll never say it. But when you say like, man, I'm, I'm sick, you know, like, or I'm struggling, will you pray for me? Lord, maybe, kind of, hopefully, if you have time, consider maybe thinking about passing by, you know? Then you've been in other part of other churches, and, and it's just like all experience, Right? It's all about power and strobe lights and poof, you know. And we don't want to be weird. But can I just throw this out there? Paul making a man blind is weird. And if you don't think that's weird, you're weird. (laughs) So we want to be a word and works community where we believe what God has said and we live out what God is saying. Catch that? We want to be both. Why? Because in order for Sergius Paulus to embrace the gospel, some people need to see it on display. Other people need to hear it. We believe if both are happening and God brings people, then he will hit them where they're at. Right? Makes sense. I said we were going to go quickly. I lied. All right. Verse 13. Now rapid fire. From... Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So again, it's going west. From Perga, they went up to Pisidian Antioch. On the map I showed you, that was at Antioch, way up north. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please... Speak. Now, Paul is about to preach the gospel. We're just going to read it. We're not going to study it. I just want you to think about how much he quotes from the Bible, right? Just look at that lens. How much does Paul quote from the Bible when he's preaching the gospel? Standing up, verse 16. Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He summarizes the entire book of Exodus. Now, we're just getting a summary. This is probably not all the words that Paul used, but he starts with the book of Exodus. After this, God gave them Judges. Ever hear about a book called Judges? So he goes into that. So he goes Exodus and Judges. Until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Ever hear of a book called Samuel? 
So again, he just, he just, he reads the whole Bible to him. Then the people ask for a king. Ever hear of a book called Kings? He traces the story of God. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Hello. He just leaped. What Saul does, because he's talking to Jews and those who understand the Jewish way, is he reads the Bible, summarizes the Bible and says, Oh, David was pointing towards the greater king. And he seamlessly ties. Jesus doesn't come in a vacuum. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of what David, the human king, could not do. Jesus does as God come as king. Verse 24. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. John the Baptist was seen as a prophet to Israel. The people of Israel believed that God would speak to the prophets. The people of Israel had not heard a prophetic voice for 400 plus years. But they thought that John the Baptist was a prophet speaking for God. So what does Saul do? He ties the entire Bible with the person that they've heard, John the Baptist, who is a prophet of God. And it says, remember, John said, I am not the guy. Someone else is coming. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. Verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So he goes through the cross and he goes through the resurrection. We tell you the good news, verse 32. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And he starts quoting the Bible, as it is written. In the second Psalm, you're my son. Today I've become your father. God raised Jesus from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said. And he quotes another Psalm. I will give you the holy and sure uh, blessings promised to David. Actually, that's Isaiah 55. And so it's stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Again, reading from the Psalms. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with our ancestors and his body decayed. In other words, King David was not the full promise. Jesus is the one whose body did not see decay. So he's comparing. You think David's the greatest king, you ought to check out Jesus. But to the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, verse 38, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to attain under the law of Moses. So now it transitions. The whole Bible is pointing forward to this greater king named Jesus. The law of Moses, which they were counting on as the path to know God. He now says, that was good, but Jesus is greater. Jesus provides a cleansing from sin that the law of Moses cannot. Because Jesus is unique, his work is unique, and his salvation is unique. Verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes a warning. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. So he takes an ancient warning and now he warns them. I just want you to see the the flow. Quotes the Bible, applies the Bible, and then talks to them and says, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins, but in the old days, some people mocked God's voice. Don't be like that. Because God wants to do some wonderful things in your life and in your day, And it was prophesied of old. But if you read the Bible, you find out that most people rejected God and it was to their own destruction. Don't be like them. Now, verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urge them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I know I'm reading a ton, but I didn't want to cut out any of it. He preaches the gospel, and what happens? Lots of people are intrigued. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So it's good, but it gets more better. Right? That's my slang for it. It it, it just gets better because it starts with a few. They're thrilled, but now there's more people. What happens when more people come? Verse 43. Um, I'm sorry, verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy. They begin to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. So when the gospel goes out, more people come, but don't get too giddy. It's not a vacation. Very quickly, we're going to find that there's resistance. Remember, as Paul is talking to Sergius Paulus, one guy resists. But now it's going to grow. Now as the crowd begins to receive the gospel, a whole crowd of people resist. That's the movement from the beginning. Then Paul and Barnabas, verse 46, answered them boldly. We have to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. It's called Jewish slam. (laughs) I love it. I'm giving you good news. This is you don't want it. Oh, you don't want life from God. Okay, fine. We now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Double quote here. Isaiah is saying the messenger is going to come. Luke's gospel says Jesus quoted that. Ancient prophecy. 
Someone's going to come and bring light to the Gentiles. Jesus says, I'm the one who brings light to the Gentiles. Oh, by the way, we're on the Jesus team. And we're going to bring light to the Gentiles. Verse 48, when the, when the Gentiles heard this. Now, Gentile, I made an assumption. That just simply some, means someone who is not born or living as a Jew. A.K.A. the rest of us. So up to this point, the Jews only speak to Jews. Because God came to Abraham and his descendants. And that's all who got the good news. But now the gospel is for everyone because of Jesus. So Paul picks up, our message is to everyone. By the way, in their day, there were more non-Jews than Jews. And in our day, there are more non-Jews than Jews. The gospel is for everyone. Now, verse 49, and we're almost done. The word of the Lord spread through the whole Region. That's our theme verse for the rest of Acts. If you look carefully on the logo, it's the verse on there. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. That is the book of Acts. But the Jewish leaders incited some God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off of their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. So they have to move on. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now that was probably way too much, but I'm glad we did it because the final thing we see about the Holy Spirit, this is the fourth occasion, is the Holy Spirit fills more people. So recapping, the Holy Spirit speaks to a few. The Holy Spirit sends a few. The Holy Spirit fills a few. And then the Holy Spirit fills more people because the disciples. The implication here, it's not just Saul and Barnabas. It's the disciples who came to faith in these various cities. The movement of Jesus is spreading and they're filled and they're excited that even them, even they get the Holy Spirit. So they're filled with joy Paul and Barnabas have to move on. And next week from chapter 14, again, we're not going to read every verse of every chapter. We're going to look at the movement of the gospel as it goes. Okay, now what does that have to do with us? All I want us to get as we begin this new series, this new extension of the book of Acts, is that momentum requires a work of the Holy Spirit. I've tried to figure out, like, how how do you grow a church? The Holy Spirit. How how do you see the gospel spread throughout your whole family? The Holy Spirit. And here's the great thing about that nugget. It means I don't have to be brilliant. It means I don't have to be loaded. It means I don't have to be persuasive. The same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus is the same Spirit that fills Peter and Saul who becomes Paul, and Barnabas, and Philip, and the disciples. That's the great equalizer. Because if we want to see God work in our day, all we have to do is trust the Holy Spirit. And if he did it then, he can do it now. I was in Scotland. And again, just thinking about Scotland is littered with church buildings that are totally empty. Average size of a church is maybe 10 but they're in every town, everywhere. There are these church buildings that are the reminders 
that God met with his people in those places. Every town has church buildings that are hundreds of years old as a reminder the gospel reached this place and this place and this place. But now most of them are empty. Most of them become nightclubs or social halls or architect buildings. And, but God is at work. So why go and leave Sunset to preach the gospel in Scotland? Did you not listen to anything we just read? It's because momentum, when you have the Spirit, you could go anywhere and see a move of God. Some say, well, why waste your time going to Europe? There aren't that many believers there. Okay, right. So only go where, okay, only go where the gospel's moving, right? Some would say that. Go to Africa, go to Latin America, go to Asia, of which all those places to me are awesome. Why go to Eastern Europe or why go to Western Europe? There aren't that many believers. Okay, how many believers were there at Antioch? How many believers were there anywhere? There were none. And that's the point. There were no believers, so the people of God go to hard places. I don't want to be a church that goes to hard places. I'm getting my yell on, so watch out. Hard places. Why? The Spirit will do the work. Three questions, and I'm going to cry. That's what I do for a living. Um, Three questions, and we're done. Number one, do you have the Holy Spirit? That's, everything happened because they had the Spirit. Then you say, well, I don't know if I have the Spirit because I'm not doing any of this stuff. You have the Spirit if you have believed on Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you're listening to the Spirit. I'm not saying you're actually participating with the Spirit and partnering with the Spirit. You have the Spirit if you have said, Jesus, I am a sinner and you are a Savior. Save me. So that's the bottom line. You cannot be used in powerful ways if you do not have... This is why it, it, it boggles the mind that some people don't believe the Bible and go into Christian ministry. What's the point? Doubt the validity of Jesus, yet lead a church. Are you an idiot? Why would you waste your time? It's like torture. Because doing church stuff is hard work. But if you have the Spirit, you can do anything that Jesus did. So, you're 16 years old and you go to Westview High School. Hear this. If you have the Spirit, you can do anything Jesus did. Anything. Because those who have the Spirit of God have the power of God to do anything Jesus did. So do you have the Spirit? Second is more complex. Are you resisting the Spirit? So, Alemus is resisting the Spirit. He's trying to stop what God is doing. Most of us are not that overt. But let me just ask you, are you resisting the Spirit? That is, are you actually asking God to use you? The Holy Spirit is looking for partners to do the works and the words of Jesus. Are you asking the Spirit? Or is sin dominating your life? Now we all sin, but some of us are so caught up in our own non-Jesus likeness that we're resisting the Spirit because we're saying, God, more than being transformed, more than being forgiven, more than being radically changed, I just want this more than you because this feels good. Which, by the way, if you have the Spirit, 
it doesn't feel good for very long, does it? If you have the Spirit, after you enjoy your sin for a bit, you're like, something within me is saying, this is wrong. So are you resisting? Well, this morning, simply repent. Repent and trust that the Spirit will forgive you and you can move on in God's grace. Third thing, and I think this is where most of us are, are you afraid? Are you afraid? I, could, I, I read body language, so professional speakers do. And the second I started talking about the works of Jesus, some of you went from lean forward to, like, physically. I wish we would have videotaped you. Like, I don't know about that. I believe it. It's in the Bible. But there's no way that God would want to do stuff in our world. Can I just say, that's totally okay. No one's going to twist your arm. No one's going to throw a jacket on you and see if you fall over. No one's, some of you got my reference, yeah. You've been watching too much TBN. Anyway, um, but if we're afraid, the Spirit is described as joy. They were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. If we're afraid, that is a sign, right, that we're probably not relying on the Spirit as much as we can. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. So if you trust the Spirit, it does not mean that you have to be afraid of what God may do. It means that you can just say, God, this is you, it's not me. But if you want to use me, game on. Game on. I'm here. And the goal as we move over the next few months is that we'll simply be more in tune with where God already is. So where are we going to go as a church? I don't need to, I don't need to know. By the way, our elders are really smart and they don't know. We don't know. The Holy Spirit will lead us one city at a time, one place at a time, one church plant at a time, one mission trip at a time, and day by day, we just trust the Spirit, trust the Spirit, trust the Spirit, and God will lead us, and it's love, joy, and peace. It's not fear.